Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, kids. Where are you? You are dismissed. You can go to Restoration Kids. Good morning. Uh, for those who don't know who I am, my name is Nick. I'm one of the elders here, together with Nathan, Joey, who's on sabbatical, and Chris, who's sitting back there. It is my privilege to preach to you this morning. And I would like to start by prayer. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for bringing him down to earth, Lord, to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, to be resurrected, and to be sitting at the glory, at the right hand of glory. We thank you that we can behold him. And we thank you that he has provided, you have provided new life for us. We pray that you guide us in your word today and you transform us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. We find ourselves today in the capital of what is probably the most powerful country on earth. We are surrounded by imposing buildings, impressive people, great ambitions, and great expectations. For all the political and social disagreement, there seems to be a consensus among the people of this city and of this country. The pursuit of happiness. People seem to disagree about what it is, what it takes to get there, but everybody seems to agree and believe that we are entitled to and should pursue a happy life. This country even has it written in its documents, entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Allow me thus to ask you, what is the happy life you want to have? What does that look like? A nice family, possibly a couple of kids, a nice house, a fulfilling job. And most of us probably think about also about making a difference in the world, something like helping the poor, reducing inequality, fighting climate change, racism. We all seek to be moral people, to be good people. And this pursuit of the happy life drives and challenges us. We work hard. We try to adapt. We, we wrestle with difficult questions. Sometimes it produces anxiety because we have to take exams, find jobs, pay bills. For some of us, happiness is almost within reach. It is an upward sloping trajectory somewhere in our minds which, which uh, seems within reach. We have these things over here, we just need a few more things and we are there. For some of us, happiness is something that we long for but we have started having doubts as to how it works. The upward trajectory is desirable, and possi but possibly, possibly unreachable. We just don't quite know yet. For some of us, and yet for some of us, the pursuit of happiness has become an almost daily reminder that our lives are not what we wanted or expected them to be. We are disappointed or even bitter because we see the success in other people's lives, the happiness in other people's lives, but we realize that we are probably not going to get there. Truth be told, we thirst for the happy life as we imagine it. And we imagine it based on what we hear, what we read, and what we see. 
We are now surrounded by many opinions about what happiness is and how we should pursue it. And we feel compelled to pursue happiness one way or another. These are not just some opinions out there, but they're sort of opinions that compel us. So in this sense, we are a bit like the Colossians. The Colossians, the Colossian Christians, were also surrounded by many opinions as to how to live life. Paul mentions persuasive arguments, philosophy, traditions of men and various dietary and religious practices in chapter 2. They lived in different times and the immediate pressures were related, that Paul was trying to address, were related to matters of religion as opposed to, say, companionship or economic standard of living issues. But they were also struggling to live and to decide how to live at the confluence of so many pushy ideas, compelling ideas. So Paul wrote them a letter to help them orient themselves and to help them in their pursuit of life. So what Paul did was to remind them of what Christ had done and who they were as a result of their faith in Christ. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 23, I'm going to read verse 13. For he, that is God, rescued them from the dominion of darkness and transferred them us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And then 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. In verses such such as this, Paul reminds them that Christ had rescued them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of light. They had, into his kingdom, they had been alienated and hostile in mind towards God, but had now been reconciled with him with the purpose of being without reproach. They had been enemies of God, part of an enemy kingdom, as it were, but were now part of God's kingdom. Paul continues and tells them that in Christ dwelt all fullness of deity, and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and as a consequence, they didn't need worldly philosophy. Christ was the ruler above all rulers and authorities and judges, And he had died for their sins, and there was thus no condemnation for them. They had died with Christ, had risen with him, and were complete in him, as he says in chapter 2, verse 10. They didn't need to prove themselves to God or anyone else. All the wisdom, philosophy, and various good practices the Colossians were encouraged to follow had the appearance of wisdom, but they were of no value against what Paul calls fleshly indulgence. So we see this in chapter 2, verse 23. These are matters, all of these things that they are being told to do, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Again, their discussion there was about religious practices. Fleshly indulgence here refers to the desire to pursue sin. The flesh refers to the unregenerate or old self, man without God at his best, due to which the judgment of God comes upon man. 
It is the self that engages in immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. It is the self that engages in wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech and lies. In short, friends, the flesh is that part of us which brings God's judgment upon us and damages our relationships with one another. So we thus see Paul framing the context of the Colossians as being people saved by God who found themselves in a confrontation between two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light or of Christ. They were to reject and fight against worldly philosophy and wisdom because they had Christ's wisdom and power. The world's methods appeared good and virtuous, but were powerless to defeat sin, or as he calls it, fleshly indulgence. And this brings us to today's passage, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. We are not going to go verse by verse, just for the record. Uh, and I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. Your text is probably going to be from the English Standard Version. So there's going to be slightly differences, but please do not get alarmed. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. The way to live, according to Paul, was to set their minds on Christ. Paul told them not, they should pursue not an earthly happy life, but the life above. Okay, the life above. Not the life here, not the earthly happy life, but the life above. The message of today's sermon is this. Set your minds on the things above and stop listening to sin. Set your minds on the things above and stop listening to sin. I'm going to break this up in two points. The first one will be longer, the second one shorter. Paul tells them to set their minds on the things above where Christ is. Where Christ is. He says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep thinking, seeking the things above. For a Christian, the way to live is to internalize or absorb heaven where Christ is. Set your minds on the things above, says Paul, not on the things that are on earth. Do not have a life vision centered around earth and earthly life, but have the vision of the heavenly life which God has given you. Paul says not only think, but set your mind and keep thinking. 
It represents a continual inclination of the mind and a regular practice. It is not about an occasional thought or a fallback thought, in case we run out of things to think about, but about a thought posture. And why should we live like this? Why should we live like this? Paul calls us to set our minds on the things above if we have been raised up with Christ. And later in verse 3, he says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he calls Christ our life. Paul's reasoning is this. You died with Christ, you rose with Christ to a life which is all about Christ. So you should think about that life with Christ who is above. Who is at the right hand of God. I realize that for some of you, it may not be clear, for some of us it may not be clear, what Paul means when he says, you died and you rose. So allow me to clarify that. The Bible describes us as sinners, alienated from God, as we saw before, part of the kingdom of darkness and enemies of God. We are rebels engaged in evil deeds and under the coming wrath of God. As such, we are slated for the justice of God, as it were. We are going to bear the wrath of God, the justice of God. But in his great mercy, however, God sent his son, his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and die on the cross to pay for sin, for the sin of sinful men and women. On the third day, he rose from the dead, revealing that the payment, his payment was accepted and complete. People who put their faith in him have Christ's payment accounted to them so they can escape the judgment of God. If Christ doesn't pay for us, we, might pay for, we must pay for it ourselves, and that means eternal separation from everything that is lovely, from everything that is good, that is eternal death. Contrary to our society's deeply held assumptions, human beings are not entitled to happiness, but to God's justice. If, however, we confess our sin, turn from it and put our faith in Christ, his death is counted for us. His status of righteousness is bestowed on us and we get transferred into his kingdom of life. It is in this sense that Paul says, you have died with Christ and you have been raised up with Christ. When we believe in Christ, we die with Christ and we're raised up with him and our lives change. Our lives become about Christ, and he becomes our life. And as Paul reminds us in, in verse 10, which we, which we read, we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The believer is thus a new creation. But we still physically live in this world, and the old self continues to exert influence. Paul knows that we are often tempted to pursue earthly things. He knows that practically and experientially, we act as if our lives are our spouses, our kids, our jobs, our status. How often don't we long for the approval of the people around us rather than that of God? And how often do we not approach problems in the same way unbelievers approach problems as if Christ hadn't died for us? 
Our life vision, our life vision, our vision of life is practically and experientially often centered not on the things above, but on the things here on earth. Yes, we might say Christ is my life, but then why are we devastated when we don't have the family that we wanted? We might say Christ is my life, but then why are we depressed, angered, devastated if we don't have a spouse or when our child is not like we thought they were going to be? We might say Christ is my life, but then why do we feel we are wasting our lives when we do or we not do a certain job? We might say that Christ is my life, but why are we feeling less than human when our status in the company, in the neighborhood, in the family is decreased? Why do we work so hard at fitting into the society around us? Why do we try to get the approval of the people around us, whether non-Christians, non-Christian friends, our employers, or the media? The reality is that often there is a disconnect between the reality of who we are in Christ, the objective reality of who we are in Christ, and our subjective longings and inclinations of the mind. So we need to remember that Christ is our life, not any of the things that belong to the earth. And our life, our heavenly life, is not something that we can see. Paul says your life is hidden with Christ in God. He continues and says, when Christ is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Our lives are not here on earth, but are hidden in heaven. They are hidden in heaven. And if hidden, then definitely not something we can see, feel, touch, or work towards. Whatever we have here, whatever we have accomplished, whatever we can buy or receive here on earth, cannot be our lives because they are not hidden. Those things are not hidden. They are visible. They are grabbable. doesn't exist as a word, but... We saw earlier that Paul phrases the context in which the Colossians lived as a confrontation between two kingdoms. We could call it a spiritual war, and the Bible calls it that. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, it says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So it is a spiritual war we live and fight in, whether we recognize it or not, whether we feel it or not. Paul says, however, that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That means they are safe. They are safe from the war. But that's not what the world wants us to believe. The world wants us to believe that our lives are here, they should be here, and we should strive to make them happy lives here. Often, wars often involve involve battles for the minds of the people fighting. They're called information wars. Because if you can make your enemy interpret information in a certain way, you can get them to make bad choices that leads to their demise. So the same thing happens in the spiritual world we are engaged in with witting and unwitting participants. Every day we are being fed information whose purpose is not to present facts but tr- or truth, 
but to shape our thoughts, feelings, and actions. When you go to a store and you see the advertising, you don't see the clothes they have. It's not about the clothes they have. It's about the lifestyle or the body you should have. If you go to a college, you don't get only knowledge about what happened when, but why it was good or bad, who was the better leader and who or who wasn't. And this is not so that you know the facts, but so that you can go and make a difference. The, ex- the examples are boundless. Most acts of communication, whether auditive or visual, are meant to influence our views of who we are and who we should be. So you put together our sinful inclinations and habits with this information war around us, and what you get is you get a deadly cocktail of deception. Most of the images we see are earthly, and they tend to be the invention of human minds and of various powers and principalities out there. Now, don't get me wrong. Okay, I don't want you to get me wrong. God has blessed us and the world with many good things, and it is good for us to desire them. There are many good things out there, and we should desire them. It is good for us to desire to be happy. It's a thirst that God has put in our hearts. However, the world around us works together with the sin in our hearts, to turn all of these good things into ultimate things, things that we end up needing too much. God has made many things good and desirable, but sin turns them into things where we seek to find our happiness, identity, and fulfillment in. But what we can see with our eyes and what we can grab with our hands, what we can influence through our work, are not our lives because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And our lives will be revealed when Christ is revealed. Our lives are revealed when Christ is revealed at the end of times, when he comes back in glory. Paul says in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verse 16, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Revelation 21 says, the apostle John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Friends, when Jesus comes back, we will have new bodies, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. We will have new names, as Apostle John tells us in Revelation chapter 2. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Matthew 20, verse 16. We will have new roles. Jesus is coming back, and then our lives will be happy and truly happy. And that happiness will be found in marveling at Jesus. That happiness will be found in marveling at Jesus. Second Thessalonians verse 1 
chapter 1 verse 10 says, He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. To be marveled at. But for those who do not believe in Jesus, the pursuit of happiness is hopeless endeavor. Second Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says, This will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So if I were to put Paul's words inside a war analogy, what he's saying is that Christians should set their minds on the lives after the war is over rather than trying to build them on the front lines of the war. It is good to desire happiness, but what is the point of dedicating mental and physical and emotional energy to building a house on the front lines of a war? Soldiers in trenches don't dream of building a house next to the trench. They count the days before they get to go back home. So what we need to do is we need to set our minds on the things above, on the things above where our lives are, not on the things that we can imagine down here. So how do we do that? Three quick ways. Three quick ways, okay? First, we confess our love for the earthly life. We confess our love for the earthly life. We acknowledge that we have loved earth more than heaven. We confess the inordinate need, inordinate need for family, job, status, or whatever else we think we need to be fulfilled. And we recognize that we are being tricked into a wasteful, life-sucking and deceiving pursuit of earthly, earthly happiness. Second, we get to know and long for Jesus. He is our life. So we take off, take, take our eyes off the riches and attractions of this world and we set them on Christ. We saturate ourselves with Christ as revealed in His Word. We make it our practice to read the Word, meditate upon the Word, and pray the Word of God with a view to marvel at Jesus. Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 16, a bit further below from what we read, says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. We teach, we admonish one another. We sing and we sing with thankfulness. We get to know Christ not as a set of facts, but as the fulfillment of our deepest desires. We get to know Him as God. He is the image of the invisible God. By Him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. We get to know Him as King. He is the head of, over all rule and authority. In Him are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is in Colossians chapter 2. We get to know Him 
as Savior. When you were dead in your transgressions, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Again, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Third, we dedicate ourselves to the pursuit of purity. Paul says earthly ways of thinking are powerless to defeat fleshly indulgence, implying that the objective is to kill sin and to defeat sin. If we live in one way or another and we don't get to defeat sin, then we have not accomplished anything. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him, before God the Father, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God sent Jesus to create a people that would glorify Him through their blamelessness. And sin is the opposite of that. Jesus is about pure lives. And we should pursue purity. And if we go back to the war analogy, pure lives should be our objective in the spiritual war we are engaged in. That's what the battle is about. That's what the battle is over. Pure lives, defeating sin. So we should dedicate ourselves to this goal. We should pursue purity, pursue love, pursue goodness, seek ways to love our neighbors, pursue the love of the church, pursue the proclamation of the gospel as the ultimate love towards our neighbors who need Christ. So friends, let us not set our minds on the earthly happy life, but on the things above. Confess your love for the earthly life. Know Jesus and pursue purity. The second and final point for today, this is going to be shorter than the first one, is, so you don't panic, stop listening to sinful desires. Okay, the first one, set your minds on the things above. And the second one is, stop listening to sinful desires. Stop listening to sinful desires. Colossians 3.5 says in the New American Standard translation that I was reading from, Therefore consider your, the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The English Standard Version says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Chapter uh, Verse 6 tells us the reason. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Friends, sin brings the wrath and justice of God. When we sin, even as a Christian, we do injustice to God and to our neighbor. Christ has done for our sins, has, has, has died for our sins, He has taken our sins, but there are consequences. Uh, chapter 3, verse 25 says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Sinning is like feeding the old self and strengthening it at the expense of the new self. Sinning makes further sinning easier. And if I willfully indulge in sin, in spite of God's call to repentance, I might not be a Christian to begin with. I might just be deceiving myself. Sin is no joke and no small thing. God is great and sin is rebellion against the great God. And the way 
we live pure lives is by not listening to sin. By not listening to sin. When the sinful desire comes, we need to recognize it for what it is and we need to stop listening to it. The reason we sin is because we listen to the lie that the sin is better than obedience to God. When we sin, the sinful desire has become big in our minds, sufficiently big that we cannot or don't have time to see past it. How does this happen? Let's go back to the war analogy. We can imagine ourselves being on a battlefield. Our opponent is attacking our positions, making us fear for our lives. The communications with the rest of the platoon go down, and the commanding officer gets shot, and we start freaking out. We can only think, survive, survive, survive. You know, flashing red, survive, survive, survive. So we abandon our position and start running back away from the enemy. This makes us temporarily feel better until we realize that this exposes us to enemy snipers. And if we do make it back, we will be called cowards at best and court-martialed at worst. In the heat of the moment, we forgot what was important and what was not. We forgot that our pre-assault briefing said, we forgot our pre-assault briefing, which said that there were 10,000 soldiers 2,000 yards behind us, and that the enemy position only had about 100 people left, and they were surrounded. We can defeat sin, we can kill sin by not listening to it and looking past it. The alternative to sinning is to recognize the lie by knowing the truth and by not listening to it. To to the lie, I mean. Listen to the truth. Instead of sinning, you obey God. So, if you're angry, you're sinfully angry with somebody, you acknowledge your malice. You ask God for forgiveness and you pray for the people. And you show them grace. If you want to slander somebody, somebody you really don't like and think they shouldn't be around, you find something nice to say about them. If you want to curse somebody, you pray that God would bless them. If you want to look at porn, you turn off your computer, you read your Bible, and think about the human trafficking and degradation that you are encouraging through your use of it. If you are tempted to grumble about how your life is not what you want it to be or have a mysterious dissatisfaction with your life that kind of just comes upon you, you thank God for the life, new life He has given you. You thank God for the new life He has given you. You pray for Christ to be revealed and you go and act lovingly towards somebody next to you. Sin is always going to tell us that the here and now is it. It's always going to try to convince us that if we don't act in the sinful way right now, we are going to hurt ourselves or ruin our lives. The truth is that our lives are safe. They are with Christ in heaven and will be revealed at the right time. Sin is always going to involve a strong feeling. Our minds and our bodies will tell us it is desirable. What that also means is that the truth of God will not involve a strong feeling. 
will not necessarily involve a strong feeling. Sin kind of takes over the feeling part. Sin is not going to be an abstract statement, but an emotional and sensual proposal. Sin is going to be instinctual. It will probably have a reasoned argument as to why we should indulge in it. But it will ultimately appeal to our deepest desires. The truth is that sin's arguments are always wrong, and often quite visibly wrong for somebody else next to us in the church. The truth is that we don't have to follow our instincts, who are flashing red and say, follow, follow, follow. The truth is that instincts can be trained and shaped. The truth is that our instinct is wrong and is playing us. The truth is that sin is selling us a bunch of lies we want to believe. The truth is that sin is shaping us away from Christ. And the truth is that we can stop listening to it if we turn our eyes from it. Now, is this a recipe? Am I giving you guys here a recipe? Am I giving you a recipe? No. This is called warfare, spiritual warfare. And as Dwight Eisenhower once said, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. We do not rely on our plans for how to fight sin. We rely on the grace of God, on the promises of God. In His grace, He has given us new life. It's keeping, He is keeping that life safe for us and has told us to set our minds on the things above, as it were, to look beyond the sin. In His grace, God has told us the truth of who we, about who we are and about what we really need. In His grace, God has told us to listening to lying sin. Friends, I'm going to be frank with you. Not that I haven't been already, but... <laughs> we are in the middle of a horrendous war. A horrendous war. There are walking, spiritually dead people left and right. And we are ourselves under attack. And in war, if you want to live, you need to know who you're fighting for, what your orders are, and who to follow. You cannot afford to listen to enemy orders. You cannot afford to listen to the temptation which says defect, leave your post, give in. You cannot afford to listen to the temptation which says run as fast as you can. No matter how, the, how strong the temptation is, you listen to your orders. Your feelings will tell you otherwise. You listen to your orders, the truth revealed. And you remember where your home is. So the message for today, the thing that I would like you to take home, is set your minds on the things above and stop listening to sin. Set your minds on the things above and stop listening to sin. Friend, if you do not believe in Jesus, the truth is that your life stands under the condemnation of God and you are spiritually dead. That's how the Bible describes you. You can have a life and a future by confessing your rebellion and putting your faith in Jesus Christ who died to bring people to God. Sin, God is a good master. Sin is a terrible one. God gave his son to save you if you believe. Sin takes all hope away. 
God speaks the truth to you about your predicament so you can live. Sin speaks attractive lies to you so you can increase your eternal punishment and stay dead. What will you choose? The life which makes you feel better for a moment or the truth which gives eternal life? Friends, I call upon each and every one of you to set your minds on the things above and pursue heavenly, heavenly happiness. Let us awake from slumber. Let us recognize the lies of sin and let us fight for purity. The battle is going to be hard and we will be wounded. We will have to renounce selfish ambition and accept the loss of dear self. We will encounter disappointment, sadness and fear. But we will be encouraged by love by compassion, by joy and holiness. We will be surrounded by the gathering of the saints. And if we cast our eyes on Jesus, if we set our minds on the things above and stop listening to sin, His truth and power will give us victory. He went ahead of us. He faced sin and death and defeated them at the cross. He now sits at the right hand of God and is coming back quickly with our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us Jesus, that you have risen us from the dead with him. We thank you that you've given us new lives, lives which are kept safe, and you're going to bring back in the right, at the right time. We thank you for all the promises you've given us and for the truth you've spoken to us. We pray, Lord, that we would listen to it. We pray that we would be empowered to be renewed, not listen to, to sin, but focus our eyes on Jesus and on the life above, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.